everyone. The reading today is from Nehemiah chapter 4, which can be found on page 684 of the Pew Bible. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome and will fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Uh -huh. 
Um, before I begin, uh, there is going to be a memorial service at High Point today. Um, calling hours will be, visitation will be at 2, um, and the memorial service will be at 3.30. Um, it is for Louise Janie Hale. She passed away last week at 11 months old. Um, the Hales had been serving their daughter in the hospital for months, and um, so um, we're going to be having that today. So if you, um, you can be there and show love for the family and celebrate, you'll, you'll grow spiritually at this because the story of this girl has been very, very moving. Um, and um, so she, um, she was a real blessing to her family and to the hospital workers who spent the most time with her. And Dave and Sarah go here, and um, his, her brother Jotham is in our children's ministry. And so if you have the opportunity to, to be here at 3.30, that'd be great if you want to celebrate with that family. Okay. Um, I know that's very sad, okay? Um, I don't know if, if Sarah and David are here right now, but um, sorry if you guys are here. I thought what I'm going to say. Um, watching them was so beautiful. It was the most beautiful, horrible thing I've seen in a very long time. And it built my faith so much to see them thanking God, praising Him, loving her, feeling what they needed to feel. I mean, it was just, it was so beautiful to watch them, even though it was horrible. And um, I'm very thankful to God that I got to, got to see that because I have so much respect for them. Okay. Nehemiah chapter 4 and us. This last, uh, yesterday I went to No Regrets conference in Milwaukee and I was speaking on a subject that they gave me to some men. And when I was uh, at a book table afterwards, one of the men in one of the sessions came up to me and said, um, I have a daughter, just went to one of the UWs and it's actually been really good for her faith. Her faith has grown rather than shriveled in college. But um, her biggest question isn't, does God exist? Did the resurrection happen? What about the problem of suffering? Can the gospel be reconciled with modern science? It's none of those things. She, she says, he said, her, her biggest question is, what do I do with all the hatred? Like, people on my floor just assume that I'm a terrible person because I'm a Christian. My, the assumption in my classes is that um, Christians are just terrible human beings. And she's like, I don't know what to do with that kind of bigotry. And... Um, and that's, that's something that I, I hear really, I mean, every time I've spoken at crew, I've had three or four people ask me questions like, what do I do with that? that? My biggest question is not a factual question about the gospel, but it's about how I'm being treated and how I treat people in response. Um, now, I know when I say that, that some of us feel like, okay, be real careful there, Nick, because um, in some ways, when things have, have become kind of less Christian, it's not so much an issue of oppression as it is inclusion. Like, America has been this kind of, like, presumptively christian culturish nation for a long time, and there are a lot of people who, like, have come from other cultures, and they don't believe that, all that stuff, and so they feel like, you know, they need to be included, and some of their stuff has to be assumed, and we can't be on home base all the time, and so you have to be really careful not to get a martyr complex and confuse including everybody in our society and being inclusive with oppression. They're not the same thing, and I agree with that. I agree with that. Okay? I know there's also some folks who would say something like, um, Nick, it, it just doesn't make any sense for us in America to talk about persecution or, like, opposition. Because, like, I don't know if you know this, but, like, in 260 countries in this world, it is of material 
difficulty to be a believer. Like in North Korea, they put you in concentration camps. In China, it's illegal to take a child to church. You can go to church. We'll just destroy your life with our, with our like, social, uh, our, our social um, accrual programs. So we'll just make sure you can't get a good job or good credit or something. But it's literally illegal to take your own child to church, right? In, um, in Nigeria, uh, a bishop got his head sawed off by Boko Haram. And there's another village where 200 people were killed. So relative to that, right? Um, so which of those ideas is true, right? Should we be incensed that our young people are being attacked at our public institutions? We, the, the answer is all three of those things are true. At the same time, like if I, think about this. In Madison, one of the things that we talk about a lot in Madison is um, educational disparities between kids of different races in our schools. If I went to a meeting in Madison, I said, listen, we shouldn't be that upset about the educational disparities in our school. Like if you go to central India, they're much larger, right, between the rich and the poor in different races in India, people in Madison would be like, you know, that's a really good point. We shouldn't care about what's going on in our schools and the kids get radically— right? They'd be like, the foul language would be used in my general direction, and they'd be like, you're an idiot, right? Because you don't, you don't say present issues are not a problem because they're worse somewhere else, right? That's not how you handle things, right? And so if, in fact, um, there is opposition to be spoken of and called what it is in our present situation, just because it's worse in other places doesn't mean it's not true here. But it is also true that we have to have a sense of proportion and advocacy in relationship to our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea and China and Nigeria. That's also true. And it's also true that it's very easy to get a martyr complex and get really angry at people when they're just trying to have their space in a shared space like our society. That's also true. It's very easy to think you're Nehemiah and really be behaving like Sanballat in this passage, right? He was the guy that was like, like, he was the guy who owned the trans-Euphrates, man. Like, this was his area. He was the governor. There weren't that many people. And then one day, 40,000 Jews show up. Right? That's a lot of people. And then they, over time, they build an altar. They start making sacrifices to their gods. They build a temple. They try to stop them from building a temple. They're unsuccessful. The king's on their side. That's a big problem. They don't listen to them, telling them what to do. Stinking Jews, right? And then they start building a wall. Some new guy from Susa comes. Now they start building the city. The city wall. Jerusalem's the greatest city in the region. And now it's going to get rebuilt. I mean, this is a problem, right? And he's upset. And there's a way in which, there's a way in which in the United States, Americans can get upset about including other people in our society and being like, no, this is my space, and we think we're being Nehemiah, and we're actually being Sanballat, and it's not becoming. Like, and that argument's true also. You've got to be kind of careful too, right? And so it's worth, it's worth meditating on chapter 4 and thinking about how do we, when we want to build something good, whether it's we want to build the church and, and the visible kingdom of God in the earth for the gospel's sake, whether we want to build godliness in our own life with God's help, in gracious striving, whether we want to build something good in this society and in the neighborhood and city we live in for justice and some, for some real good, whether we want to build something just personal in our life. Like, like, listen, you try to lose 15 pounds and there's opposition to that. Listen, there's a lot of opposition to just about any good you want to do. On every level you want to do it, right? So what do we do? And on, on one level we need to recognize in terms of our faith that Jesus makes very clear that you know, people didn't like him, and they're not going to like—on some level, if you follow God as deeply as you can, there's some level on which people aren't going to like you. Because you, you have to remember, every good that you do in your life, 
whether it's because of Jesus or not, any good that you do in your life that's hard, people don't like to do hard things, and they don't like people bringing up that they don't do hard things. Do you understand? And so listen, people talk a lot about being judgmental, like you shouldn't be judgmental, you shouldn't be judgmental with me and other people. Okay, listen, if you just do something hard, everybody will think you're judging them just by your behavior of doing something because they feel convicted watching you do the thing you need to do, and they know they're not doing it. And even unconsciously, a lot of the opposition that we're going to face is just going to be unconscious. Listen, you try to lose some weight, and somebody will just—they don't even know why they're offering you a donut, but they'll offer you one. You know what I mean? And, you, and, and like, they're just—they're just trying to help, right? But they're—you they, know—they're a little—they're a little—they um, feel left out. They're a little—and that happens with, like, moral stuff. Like, you try to really work on your marriage. You're like, listen— my wife and I, we're going to like, we're going to talk. We're going to have at least 20 minutes a day where we're just talking to each other. We're going to do this thing. We're going to, we're going to like share what we're learning in our devotions at least twice a week. Or we're going to, we're going to go out on a day at least. This, we're going to do some of these things. We're going to, we're going to, I'm going to be in love with this woman and she's going to be in love with me, dang it. And I know it's hard because we're human beings and sinful and there's children and ah, but like it's going to happen, right? Listen, you say that in small group and you just can't help but just annoy, like, a bunch of other people, even though you're trying to do it for love. You know what I mean? Because like we all get a little threatened by other people doing the hard thing when we're not doing it. You know what I'm saying? It's just human. Now, all right. So here's what we learned from chapter four about overcoming opposition, right? Overcoming opposition requires an unyielding meekness. Okay, we talked about meekness last week. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more this week because some people only go to church twice a month and because I have to preach about it like nine times before we'll really get the feel for its meaning and purpose in our life, okay? Um, last week I talked about a ferocious meekness. This week I'm talking about unyielding meekness, and I'm intentionally doing that because people think that meekness means that you're not a fighter, so it can't be ferocious. And people think that meekness means that you just lay down and you just defer to anybody else and let them do whatever they want. But it's not. There is a meekness that is an unyielding meekness, right? When, when it—meekness is the kind of love that if, it, if you can defer to somebody else to serve them, you do, right? You like serving people. So if they say, well, I want to go get burritos and you want to go get sushi, like you go get burritos. Not only because it's a cost a tenth of the price, but because they want to get burritos. You know what I'm saying? And like, that's—you just don't mind serving them. It's fantastic. But if somebody's like, you know, I'm going to go beat up that kid, you're kind of like, you're not going to defer and be like, well, let me help you beat up that kid. You know, you're like, you're like, no. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you from, like, there's a—you see, love is contingent on whether or not the thing is for the true good. When, when, when something's in the true good of another person, love supports it and affirms it and helps it. When it's in, when it's in, not in the true good of another person, you don't. Love can't support it right? Same thing with meekness. When meekness can defer to somebody else, in meekness and self-forgetfulness, it does. But when meekness requires that you stand your ground and you don't give a person a single inch, it is 100% unyielding, right? So to clarify, for, for those who are like, wait, I don't know. In the scriptures, this is what meekness means. Meekness is the opposite of wrath, not confidence or assertiveness. So wrath is the self-important, destructive anger that leads to sin in the face of conflict. So you get in a conflict, and how do you handle it? You feel kind of threatened. You don't like what's happening. Your way is blocked. What do you do, right? Well, the natural, fleshly human reaction is to get upset that you're being treated this way, 
to believe that your rights aren't being respected, believe that you deserve to exert force on others because they need to get out of your way and they need to do what you believe is just that you deserve. And you are, and so therefore you can loose your wrath in order to accomplish justice, which is what you require. And you're really being a selfish jerk who is destroying relationships and ruining the good, but it feels so good. Okay, it's really important to recognize that basically all of the deadly sins, and all sins are deadly, but there are some that are just, we just do more, right? They feel great, right? Everybody knows that lust feels great, but, but wrath feels even better. Because lust doesn't feel great until you do the lusting action, right? It, the lust itself, the lust is a desire. It doesn't feel good until you go do what lust is pointing to. Then that feels good. Well, God created that. But with, with wrath, the anger itself feels good. The high of the drug comes in the rage itself. The believing you're so right, and you're on the side of the gods, and fire can come flying out of your eyes, and you'd be in the—you'd you'd be so righteous, you know? And what that does is it feeds upon himself, and it creates an internal addiction, and if you, it, it'll turn you into a rage monster. And if you are a rage monster, it's really hard to shut that off. Like one day, I'd just not be a rage monster anymore, because it act, th these sins not only control you, but they weaken you. So when you wake up and you realize that this is a sin that's killing you, you, you realize, okay, I gotta stop doing this. I gotta stop being a rage machine. And then you realize you're not as in control as you thought you were. And then you, because you, now you're sinning not just out of, out of um, presumption, like, I'll just do what I want. Now you realize it's a sin and you want to stop and you can't because you're too weak to stop. And then you feel terrible because now you feel weak. And you're like, now I'm this weak person, right? And if you're a man, it's very unmanning, right? And Yet, the way you overcome sins of infirmity is you start by—you start apologizing. So, like, if you get angry, you apologize in the most humiliating way possible. And you, you do it less, and you hold it back. And over time, it will change. Over time, it will change. But don't—don't don't tell Jesus you're just a hothead, okay? Like, don't—that doesn't work, okay? Jesus was angry enough to flip over tables. If he—if he—if he loosed himself, he would have burned down the whole temple with his eyes, okay? But he just— he held it back. He did what was appropriate and what was proportional. Sorry, I'm working on a sneeze here. Meekness has all of the strength, but it is, it is channeled through a virtue that is self-forgetful, that is constructive, and that works for the zeal of what's good. See, a lot of us believe that the sin of sloth is the opposite of industry. That to be slothful is like to eat Doritos and smoke weed and play video games in your parents' basement, or it's like eating bonbons on the couch watching TV and getting as fat as possible. That's really not what sloth means, okay? Sloth isn't the opposite of industry, hard work. You can work 80 hours a week and be entirely given to the sin of sloth. Do you know that? You can be working yourself to death, and you can be slothful, because what sloth, what sloth is is the— is the lack of zeal for the good. The opposite of sloth is zeal. It's a recognition of what's good and a passion to do the good and for that to energize you to go do it. And so if you're working 80 hours a week for yourself, you, you can be, your heart can be filled with sloth because if I say, hey, let's do the good, and you're like, ah, hmm. I've been working a lot, right? You see, that can be just as much sloth as the guy who works five hours a week so he can pay for weed and plays video games 45 hours a week in his mom's basement. 
Because the issue related to sloth is, is it, is there a lack of zeal for the good? And what meekness does is meekness desires to be constructive in its rejection of wrath. And instead of moving from wrath to sloth, it focuses itself on zeal, which is to the desire to do what is good, what God thinks is good, and what God wants. That has to well up in us, and then when zeal is put together with meekness, something incredibly constructive can happen. Does that make sense? And that has to be built through faith, right? What is your faith for? It's to be exerted in something, and one of the things that's exerted is, is to learn to think God's thoughts, learn to work them into your character, learn to be the thing that Jesus died to declare you, right? Now, okay, a couple of things, how this works. One, anybody who wants to build, that is, has zeal for the good and wants to do it, right, has to recognize that you're going to face wrath. I already said some stuff about this. It says in Nehemiah 4.1, When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. What did the wall have to do with that guy? Nothing, in, nothing directly, but he still got really angry about it. And what you need to understand is, is that anytime you try to do good in, in, in your life, in response to God, you're going to face opposition, right? Theologically speaking, Christians believe in um, supernatural, intelligent beings. We call them angels and demons. And so there's going to be what we call, what we would call demonic opposition all the time. There's always going to be that. There's also going to be your flesh, the part of you that doesn't want to do hard things. It's, always, it's like, have you ever been like, gone for a run, and you run like, like 200 yards, and your body's like, oh, that was a good workout. We should stop right now. <laughs> right? That, like, that's your flesh being like, I don't want to do this hard thing. I don't want to do it. Let's stop. We should stop right now. It's fine. We'll be fine. Right? There's a part of you that just doesn't want to do it. And then, in addition to that, there's also worldliness for the people around you that really, they want to, you know, you're the nail that's sticking up that they want to hammer back down. You know, why are you so stuck up? Why are you so judgmental? Why do you have to be better than everybody else? Why do you have to feel like, right, that kind of attitude? And a lot of people are going to, who are going to oppose you, listen, this is very important. A lot of the people who are going to oppose you are going to be people who are on your side, who are favorably disposed towards you, who may even love you but because they don't really understand what's happening, they're going to they're gonna be in opposition to you without even knowing it. There's, there's one young woman I was talking to this week, and she said when she first started telling people she started going to church, they were like, oh, that's cool. You live in Madison. You don't really know a lot of people. That's a good way to get to know people, right? Now, that sounds nice, right? Just her friends at work just telling her nice things. But she said, you know, that was really unhelpful because I realized that they weren't with me because I was going to church to seek the truth. I wanted to find out what was real. I had questions about God and, and my life. I didn't just go to meet people. Like, yeah, it was fun to meet people and play, play a sport and stuff like that. But like, that's not why you're supposed to go to church. It's not why I was going to church. It's not— And she, she's like, so even though they were like supporting me, they still were standing off and in some ways opposed to me. And it was really hard because they were trying to be for me. And listen, you need to understand that some people are going to be against you functionally, even when they're in some ways in their own mind trying to be for you. They're still doing something that the energy of it is getting you off the track. Does that make sense? The people who came to Nehemiah and said, hey, we can't do this. In their mind, they weren't like, I'm going to stop Nehemiah and keep him from what God wants to do in his life. They were like, I'm scared I'm going to get killed, and we need to stop this. They were thinking of something else. Does that make sense? And so you've got to be ready for this. So 
applicationally what that means for a Christian is, is that you need to be acquainted with what wrath is. What is wrath? How does it function? How is it? And there's two reasons you need that. One is because you have wrath inside of you. Human beings are extremely wrathful and volatile creatures when it comes to anger. Some of us, in terms of our temperament, are a little bit more given to this sin rather than others, but all of us have had the capacity for self-righteousness mixed into our anger, blowing up and doing destructive things to other people. Does that make sense? And so you need to know that for yourself, and you need to know how it functions in other people. Second is, you know how, you need to know how evil is done and how good is accomplished. Like, it's not enough to just say, well, what, what is Jesus for? So for, let me, let me ask you, here's an example. All right, finish this verse with me. If you can, out loud, okay? Just play, just play along. Play along. Will you play along? All right. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I miss one? Oh, that's just a different translation. Yeah, forbearance, gentleness. Yeah. Okay, so, great. We got that, right? That's good. You guys know the fruit of the Spirit. You're so godly. It's so fantastic. Okay. The verse before that. The works of the flesh are obvious. Can you finish this one with me? Can, is there anyone in this room that can finish that verse? Raise your hand if you can finish that verse. Anyone, one person. Do you know all of them? Yeah. Jill, yeah, Joy only got sexual immorality, so that's good. That's good. She knows that one for sure. Okay, do you see the, do you see the point I'm making here is? We, na- we naturally like the good stuff. But you see, the Bible is full of both the bad stuff and the good stuff. It's like, you got to understand the bad stuff, you got to understand the good stuff, and you got to understand how they relate, right? From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, there's this focus on that human maturity is rooted in being able to distinguish between good and evil, and to be able to do the one and resist the other, which means you have to be acquainted both with good and how it functions and how it's accomplished, and with evil and how it functions and how it's accomplished. How does the Bible start? The human beings interacting with what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do you interact with good and evil? Do you let God teach it to you so that you can bear the image of God in relationship to God? Or do you steal the knowledge of good and evil and try to become God? It's one of the first questions about how you interact with good and evil. And we got it wrong. That was bad, right? As you work through the Bible over and over and over again, there's this good and evil, good and evil. There's one point where David makes a wise judgment and the woman who's before him says, you're like an angel of God able to distinguish between good and evil. And you get to the book of Proverbs, there's a a whole long section about how to predict evil and how evil people behave and how foolish people behave and then how wise people behave. You're supposed to be acquainted with both good and evil and how both function. And then you get to the book of Hebrews and the author's like, listen, I wish I could tell you guys deeper stuff, but you're not even ready for it. You're like drinking milk, you're not ready for steak. But listen, the mature Christian is defined because by long practice— has trained himself to distinguish between good and evil. Why is that important? Well, here's why it's important. Because both good and evil in people are highly predictable. Okay, I cannot tell you how many counseling sessions I've had in 25 years where I sit down with somebody and they talk for two minutes and I say, stop, because I know it's going to take them 50 minutes just to tell their story and that's all the time I've got to spend with them, you know? Stop. Here's what happened from there. You did this, then they did that, then you did this, then they did that, then you did this, and now you're here and you probably need a lawyer. And they're like, oh my gosh, how did you know that? Do you have a prophetic gift? I think this is a charismatic church, right? And, and I say, well, I don't know, but, um, but it's so predictable 
because you're a human. You revealed to me your moral assumptions by the, the way you're telling me your story. And I can tell on the basis of the character that's been revealed in the first few things you said exactly where this is going. I know where this is going. Human beings are extremely predictable. So if you understand how good and evil works, you can predict where everything evil in you is going and everything God is doing that's good in you is going. So you're not blindsided, but also you know where everybody else is going. And one of the reasons why that's helpful is that you can be disciplined in responding to people who come to you with wrath. So for example, I pretty much know who in my life is going to attack me. Like, I know which ones of you are going to attack me. I kind of know when, too. And so when you walk up to me and you're like, oh, I'm going to blindside this guy. And you're like, you're like, Nick, you're just— And I'm like, yep. It's 20 minutes early. Okay. Like, I, and it's not because I'm psychic and it's not because I have a prophetic. It's just because— it's just—people are very predictable. And the reason I say that's important is because if you know what's going to happen, you're emotionally ready for it. And so you, you're not reacting. You're ready. And so you're like, okay, this person's going to attack me, and then Jesus wants me to respond like this. If you don't understand the difference between good and evil, and you're not in control of wrath in your life, and you're not growing in unyielding meekness, you're just flipping around like a leaf in the wind with no control over everything. And so your wrath is flaring up, and then they're attacking you, and you didn't know you were going to get attacked, and you don't know why everybody's so angry, and then you yell back at them, and you're not ready for that, and then your relationship comes apart, and you're like, how did our relationship come apart? I was like, how could it not have come apart? Like, it's, it's so predictable. And you see, if we, you get even two of those, these three, it makes such a big difference. It makes a huge difference. And yet, all of these things are hard. All of them have to be pursued. And you will have and feel opposition in pursuing all of them, right? I gotta keep moving. Okay, here we go. Number two. Anyone who builds must prepare for weakness. Not just opposition, not just wrath, but weakness. Okay, listen. If you try to move forward in anything, you're gonna have to grapple with weakness. Okay, listen. It is so important to understand how weak human beings are. Okay, we're incredibly weak creatures. It's so easy to get inside somebody's head. It's so easy to discourage people. It is so easy to confuse people. And so there's this point in the story where Nehemiah has done all this work, right? And they're, they're, they're starting to close up the wall. And so Sambalat is trying to come up with a different plan. What he, and so what he does is he starts lying to people who've never been to Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is such a mess, they haven't even seen it. It's such a mess, it could never— the wall could never actually be built. Like in their minds out in these towns— like, people are telling you, oh, we're building the wall of Jerusalem. They're like, there's no way you could even build. There's not even space to walk around in there. It's just, it, the whole city's full of trash. Like, it's not, the wall's never going to be built. And, you know, all these other people are coming for you. Like, your towns are completely unprotected. Your men are all in Jerusalem building some wall that can't even be built, right? And what do these people do? As, like, to quote the Princess Brian, they're panicking into error. You know, right? Like, they're, they're like, oh my gosh, like, they're right. And they, they don't have the presence of mind to be like, wait a second. These people who are telling us are liars. It sounds perfectly reasonable. And so they go to Jerusalem and say, listen, there's only one place in the entire Bible where anybody says anything ten times. Right? Did you, did you catch that when Libby read it? They came to us and they said ten times over, they will attack you from anywhere. Right? It, there's no more adamant locution than that, right? And so, so what does Nehemiah do, right? He, do, he does not respond by saying, you cowards. No, see, he understands 
that though he's trying to be strong, their weakness, their statement, they're like, we can't build this wall. We can't accomplish this. This can't be done. He sees that as that's normal human behavior. That's, like, that's to be expected, right? And let me say one more thing about that. When you behave like that, with that kind of weakness in your faith, when you're that weak, you listen to lies that easily. Jesus is better than Nehemiah in his response. Do you understand that? Nehemiah doesn't even say, you cowards. And Jesus is a truer and better Nehemiah. He, when you're like, Jesus must hate me for how weak I am. Man, I, I've committed this thing 15 times. I can't even take the first step. Jesus must hate me. His look, if I could see Jesus' face, I know the look on his face would be some kind of form of disgust. You know what I mean? That's not how Nehemiah treats these people, and Jesus is better than Nehemiah. Do you understand? You need to understand that. Jesus understands human infirmity and weakness. That's not an excuse for us, right? It doesn't mean you should be like, oh, I should be weaker, you know? Jesus will love me more. I mean, that's almost like Romans 3 or 4 where Paul says, you know, people think that because we say we're saved by grace, you should just sin more. No. No, no. We should seek to grow strong in Christ, but that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't incredibly acquainted with our weakness, with your weakness and mine. And anybody who wants to build anything has to recognize that you're going to be facing and dealing with your weakness and the weakness of others. And if you're not prepared for that, then you're going to get blindsided, right? And so <clears throat> some of the ways to look at this would be—sorry, I don't have time to go over that—is <clears throat> to expect natural weakness to, to weaken your motivation. Like you're resolved to do the thing that you want. So if you say, for example—let's use a simple example. Let's say you say, I'm going to go running two times a week. That's— that's not a very ambitious goal, right? It depends, right? Yeah. <laughs> you need to realize it's not going to be as simple as setting your alarm and going running, is it? What's going to happen when your alarm goes off? Right? There's some little voice inside you who's going to be like, this is so nice. It's so nice to just lay here. And we worked hard yesterday. I mean, like, it was a tough day. And— I think there's some bacon in the fridge. And we, we should, right? Like that, that's what happens, right? And you need to figure that in, man. You need to figure in the human weakness. You need to set three alarms. You need to tell your, you give, give your, give your wife like a little club and be like, sweetie, if I don't get up, you need to hit me with that thing until I get up. Like you, like you need to figure it in and you need to plan for it, right? So like how many, like how many people like have said before, I'm, you know, every morning I'm gonna read the Bible. Or five days a week, I'm going to get up and read the Bible for 15 minutes. And you just haven't ever done it. You just haven't ever done it. You did three days and you stopped, right? Why? Why? Is it because after three days you decided that reading the Bible was stupid and you never wanted to do it? It wasn't. Well, maybe even for some of you, but you're wrong, right? <laughs> for, for most of us, it's just like, it just—something happened. You know, like you just didn't, right? You've got to figure in human weakness. If you want to succeed, if you want to be strong, part of being strong is knowing what you are and who you are and figuring in that human weakness and having a plan to deal with that human weakness. That's why I have people go to Bible studies. What are Bible studies for? Because if you can't trust people to read the Bible by themselves. That's why there's Bible studies, right? And it's helpful to talk with other people. But that's the reason half the people who go to Bible studies go to Bible studies is to force themselves to read the Bible and to tell their wife they have to buy breakfast out, right? And then apply zeal against sloth, 
Right? There's this verse in Romans 12 where Paul says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now think about that. Whose job is it in that verse to stoke the fire of zeal for the good and for God in the Christian heart? Right? Is it God's job? Right? It's not in that verse. Now, God gives us faith. God displays the good and beauty for us to see. Right? He shows us this in the man, Jesus Christ. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God is inscripturated in the story of the Bible. There's all kinds of helps. There's plenty. God has loaded the wood, okay? And he's lit the fire with his spirit, and he's given you the gift of faith. But it, like, you are supposed to stoke that fire. You have to do the work of falling in love with the good and stoking up your passion for it. And you have to be involved in that. That's what your faith is for. It's one of the reasons why we worship. Right? And we spend time worshiping, and we, we sing, and we pray, and we like talk over the truths of the gospel. There's all these things we do. Why do we do it? Why do we call reading the Bible and praying, doing your devotions? Right? That's a weird name. Well, unless you realize that the purpose of it is to increase devotion. That's the whole point of it. It's to stoke up the fire a little bit more. Right? All right. Gotta keep moving. Three. Responding to opposition requires unyielding meekness, right? So after Sanballat and Tobiah and all these people get all, get all angry and get all exercised, and they do all this terrible stuff, how does Nehemiah actually respond? He's like, he's like everybody, like, get all your, all your swords, and we're going to sneak into Sanballat's little house, and we're going to slit all their throats, those scumbags, right? Or, or he could be like, you know what? I'm the cupbearer to the king. I'm going to write a letter back to the king, and he's going to send me people with spears and swords. We're going to burn that guy out. And he's going to make me the trans-Euphrates governor because this guy won't respect the clear written instructions of the emperor. Right? Doesn't do that. Because like you, you can read Nehemiah's prayer where he's like, God, I hope all the things that they try to do to us will happen to them. That doesn't sound like a really gracious prayer, does it? Like you could compare Nehemiah's prayer to maybe like what you would expect Jesus to pray about. You'd be like, you'd be like you know, why doesn't he pray— God forgive them because they don't know what they're doing or something nice like that. Well, when you compare it to that, it doesn't sound like a very meek prayer. But when you compare it to what Nehemiah would have wanted to do or what you want to do with your kid when they talk to you disrespectfully, it's a very meek prayer. Because he takes all the wrath that's in his heart and he says, God, to the extent to which this is just, I'm going to hand it off to you and I'm going to leave wrath to you. Whatever they deserve, frankly, I hope they get but it's not going to come from me. Right? And then he went out and he built the wall. That's what he did. He just built the wall. What can you do? Right? What meekness does is in faith, it does the constructive thing out of zeal for the good in self-forgetfulness. That his job was still the same job. Built the wall. Right? And that's what has to happen in our opposition. Whether we're facing weakness or whether we're dealing with wrath or other kinds of opposition, our job is to constructively do the thing we're there to do. Parent the kid. Do the job. Serve the bacon. Drive the garbage truck. Cut down the tree. Love the spouse. Take out the garbage. Do the thing. Does that make sense? Now, there's four things you can see Nehemiah doing. You might find this helpful in terms of the actions of um, unyielding meekness. So one is that you see prayer and action together. Prayer and action together, that's important. There's no point at which Nehemiah prays and then does nothing. Do you notice that? He prays. 
He prays two or three times in this passage, and then he acts. And those always go together. And that is not a demonstration that Nehemiah doesn't have faith. It's that Nehemiah doesn't confuse what should be prayed about with what should be done. Does that make sense? I had this roommate in college, and um, I asked him when he was going to do the dishes, and he said whenever he felt led, you know? And I was like, I don't think that's how it works, right? Like, if Nehemiah had in Hebrew, in his office in Jerusalem, a little sign that said in, in Aramaic or Hebrew, let go and let God, right? What he would have meant by that was, let God do what only God can do, and let go of the stress and anxiety that comes from thinking that you're God and how you behave. And pray about that stuff, and then trust God, right? And then he would have got out of his chair and gone out of his office and built the wall he was supposed to build, not thinking God was going to do that. Because his job was to be a steward. His job was to be the governor, and the governor's job was to build the wall, and that was his job. So he builds the wall, and he believes that God's going to help him, and he prays for God to help him, and he prays for God to protect him, and he prays for God to work in all the ways he can't work, and then he does his job. And over and over again, you see this. So he prays, and they build a wall. He prays for God to protect them, and he sets out guards at night. He, you know, he prays, and then he accommodates refugees, and he changes the structure of the building project, and he prepares the defenses. He does everything an atheist would do, but he realizes he can never succeed without God's help. He needs God's help. He's prayed for God to work in all the ways he can't control, and he trusts God in all of those things so that he has the courage to take the step, even though he would may have failed in courage if he didn't believe God was with him. Do you understand? It's important to recognize. So, but listen, you don't be like, okay, so next point is pray, but do the thing. No, no, no. Emphasize pray as much as do the thing. Don't just do the thing and not pray. Quit doing the thing without praying. Pray. Does that be a long prayer? I, I'll, half the time out in the lobby seat, will you pray for me? I say, God, please help so-and-so with such and such. Amen. And they're kind of like, I expected more of a show than that. That's it, man. God is in heaven. You're on earth. Let your words be few, it says in Ecclesiastes. Like, you ask God to do it. That's it. Like, it's not an incantation. You're not doing magic. You just ask God to help you, and then you do what you're supposed to do. Okay, the second thing is that you keep moving forward. F-I-T-R-D. It's a high point saying, fail in the right direction. Right? You're not going to succeed at everything. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be anywhere near perfect. You're, you're actually, if your life was a ballet, it would be pretty bad, actually. Right? But, you can aim yourself in a direction so that when you trip, you fall in the right direction, and you get up and you keep moving in that direction. Do you understand? And that's the, what the Christian life really looks like. Sometimes the ballet gets better, but there, you tend to just—it's the direction you're moving that's the important thing. And in each case where Nehemiah comes to a hitch, he finds a way to keep the thing moving forward. Because, because of opposition and because of human weakness— when something you're supposed to do gets stopped, it's harder to restart it, right? So if I'm trying to run three times a week, and I've run twice, and it's Friday, and my alarm goes off, and I'm like, ah, I'm just not going to run today. Well, if I don't run today, it's going to be twice as hard to get out of bed the next day. And if I get out of bed this day, it'll be, I don't know, 11% easier to get out of bed the next day. Like there's a, there's a psychological self-control disciplinary momentum to life. And you don't stop something that you're trying to do if you can keep it moving. And keeping it moving is important. Now, you can't always keep it moving. In Ezra, for example, when they were building the temple, there's a point where the work stops. 
And they keep trying to get started again, and finally they do. So you can't literally always keep the thing going. Sometimes you just can't. But whenever you can find a way, you do. Which leads us to the next thing, which is you got to look for new, new opportunities. If you give yourself into wrath, if you get upset, and then something happens, and you get angry, you're not going to be creative. Part of meekness is being self-forgetful enough to look at what's in front of you and see opportunities, even where you might think that there are obstacles. I don't know if you—did you notice that the way God answers Nehemiah's prayer in this passage is through his enemy overplaying his hand and creating an opportunity Nehemiah couldn't make himself in chapter 3? Did you notice that? So in chapter 3, he's trying to gather as many people as he possibly can to do the work. He doesn't really have enough people. The work is kind of going slow, right? And so these guys terrify everybody, and they then send a stream of people to the city, thinking that when they get there, they'll see how insurmountable the work is, and they'll quit. But when they get there, what they see is the work is going on, the work is proceeding, people are working sacrificially, the work can be done, they have the tools that they need, they just need more people. Well, what did they just get? More people. And the people are terrified. All right. Well, there's two ways to fix the terror here right? You can quit the work and everybody can go back to their homes, and you can still get yourself killed because an army versus any individual town is going to win. The best way to defend yourself is, oh, let me think about this, with a wall, <laughs> right? And so now months have gone by, or, or not even that long, just a couple of weeks, where they've been clearing out the city and using all this rubble to build the wall. Now there's space available. These people all show up, and he's like, look, I got these places to put you. So now he takes these people who are essentially refugees. He places them in the city, and now, well, they're not just going to sit around. He just quadrupled his workers. Now he's got all these new workers. You see, because when these people came to him, he didn't spit in their face and tell them they were cowards. He recognized that this hardship at this moment was an incredible opportunity. His darkest moment, when his own people were like, we got to stop this. It's over, Nehemiah. We can't risk our lives like this. Instead of being like, how dare you treat me this way? He was like, wait a second. Wait a second here. What you need, and what we need, and what we can accomplish, it can all happen. And he finds a way forward because he's looking for a new opportunity. And he's, he's willing to be flexible. And he's willing to read the providences that God lays in front of him. And instead of seeing the thing as an insurmountable hardship, he's able to see how God is directing him. And because his, his mind is open to that, and he's trying to keep in step with the Spirit. And God does things he can't control. And then he's rolling with it. Listen, if you want to make progress with God, you do not know the future, right? You don't know the future. So how do you— get involved in like a really interesting creative plan of God that you can't predict, right? The only way you can do it is if you can have zeal for the good, you're trying to keep in step with the Spirit, but then you've got to be flexible because He's not going to be flexible. He's going to do His thing, right? And then you see what's happening, and then you roll with it because you're looking for Him to bring up those opportunities, and then you move through them. That's part of a spiritual process called keeping in step with the Spirit or discernment. It's really important. And it can only be done by the meek because the wrathful are too closed-minded, and so are the fearful. Right? Only the unyieldingly meek, the ferociously meek, the courageous, can be removed enough to see what's there, but still bold enough to do it. Right? And then fourth is that you hold to absolute integrity. Right? The, this moment of stress is not the time to engage in indulgence. You see this a lot of times with people who are in leadership where they're, they're doing a lot, and it's really stressful, and 
at that moment, they're like, you know, ah, I just, I'm stressed out. I just need to like, let, allow myself this thing. You see this with leaders getting into affairs. It's kind of like dieting for like three weeks and doing so well that you eat a whole chocolate cake. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's doing something that's ultimately profoundly counterproductive. It's a way in which all that you're doing actually gets destroyed because you indulge yourself in this thing, right? And so Nehemiah's got, got all these more workers now. His personal work on this is less important than it was a day ago. He could be like, look, I'm going to go up on top of Mount Moriah where I can see the whole city with the trumpet guy, and we're going to, we're going to like drink scotch whiskey, and you guys are going to, this is fantastic. You're going to get this done in no time, right? Like he does not do that. He does a bunch of things to make sure that not only is he doing everything everybody else is doing with full integrity, he actually does things even for optics so that nobody can see something and think that he's not doing it. Think about this. Why does he split his men into two groups? Right? He's got these men who are servants. He splits them into two groups. One half works and one half carries weapons. Why does he do that? Well, think about it. If all of his men worked, what could he be criticized for? Well, none of your men want to do the dangerous work of being prepared to fight and to fight our battles. You don't want to shed your blood. You just want to move stones, right? But if everybody was carrying weapons and they weren't moving any stones, what could people complain about? Well, you just stand around with the weapons. You're not doing any work. We're doing all the work, right? People are really good at complaining. I don't know if you've noticed this, right? So shrewdly, to make sure everything looks like has incredible integrity, he splits his men up into two groups. Somebody's like, well, why aren't your guys working? He's like, half my guys are working right over there. Well, why aren't your guys ready to fight? Half my guys are right over there ready to fight. And you'll notice too that nobody associated with him, neither him, nor his brothers, nor his men, nor his guards, none of them even changed for the night, man. Because they were guarding and sleeping and working and guarding and sleeping and working guards always in one of the garrisons of work or defense. Even when, and the translation is, even when we went out for water, um, or there's another way to translate that that's not really relevant right now. The point is that at every single moment, they were participating with all the people in the work that was being done because they realized that this was a moment where integrity was more crucial, not less. Do not succumb to indulging yourself at the moment of your highest stress when you're working towards some good. Because at that moment, other people are feeling stressed too, and they're looking to find fault with you. Right. Now, you can see this with, um, you can see this all over the life of Jesus. Right? Jesus knows about human weakness and about wrath, right? Think about Peter. What does Peter do after the Last Supper? They go to Gethsemane, and what does Jesus want them to do? He wants them to pray, right? He wants them to be emotionally prepared for the wrath that they're going to face so they can respond with unyielding meekness, right? He prays, and then he prays again, and then he prays again. And his disciples don't really pray very well, but they had had five glasses of wine. Um, and so then the people come to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? Right? He pulls out a sword, and he cuts off somebody's ear, Right? And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. What's he rebuking? Wrath. Right? Wrath. He's like, that is not how we're going to respond to this. Right? And then what happens to Peter? Everybody runs. Everybody runs. Right? And then over the next few hours, G Peter denies Jesus how many times? Three times. Right? What's that? It's weakness. It's weakness. 
right? And Jesus knew it was coming. He told Peter beforehand. He said, Peter, listen, Satan's going to sift you like wheat. Like you, you're going to get run over the coals, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And then I also prayed that after it did, that you would come back, right? You see, Jesus, Jesus gets this, okay? He gets human weakness. He gets human wrath. He gets unyielding meekness. He gets having to prepare yourself beforehand. He gets the predictability of human sin. He gets, he gets understanding how good and evil works. He gets all of it. And he's been trying to teach us all of it. Because he cares and he wants to see us become the person in the story we want to be. Because who do you want to be in that story? In the Nehemiah story, chapter 4, who do you want to be? Right? You want to be Nehemiah? I want to be Nehemiah. I want to be David and David and Goliath. I want to be Nehemiah in that story. I want to be the whale and Jonah and the whale. <laughs> right? I want to be this hero, you know? And, but like, here's what I, what I probably am. Two days a week, I'm probably one of the people moving stones. And four days a week, I'm probably the people telling Nehemiah it can't be done. I can't become godly, Jesus. That's never going to happen. I'm never going to—I'm always going to be managing my behavior. I'm never going to feel it from the depths of my soul. I'm never going to be that person. I'm never going to be the pastor I need to be, or the husband, or the father that I need to be. I'm never going to be the thinker I need to be. I'm never going to be the basketball player I want to be. I mean, I'm never—I mean, I'm, I'm always going to, like, eat the donuts I shouldn't eat. Like, I'm always going to, like, respond the way I shouldn't. I'm always going to be irritable with my kids when they're disrespectful. I'm just always—like, it's—like, this—this thing you're building— in me, and this thing that I'm supposed to be Nehemiah in the building of, this is not going to happen, okay? And for most of us, if you're honest, that's how you feel, right? And I want you to understand, you need to understand that Jesus is better even than Nehemiah. He says about his enemies, like Sanballat, he says, Father, don't count the sin against them, rather than give them everything that they deserve, Right? And he says, and he says to the people who say to him, what you want to accomplish me is never going to be done. You're never going to win. You're never going to, right? Nehemiah is building this wall for them. Jesus died for us. And we are the ones who turn to him and say, it's never going to work. It's never going to work. And he doesn't say, you coward. Because he could. You could come to Jesus. You come to me. You come to this church. You'd be like, look, I'm just never going to be that guy. I'm never going to be that woman. And Jesus could say to you, he could stand here if he wanted to and say, you coward. You coward. You weakling. And he doesn't. He, it's not only that he doesn't say it, he doesn't even feel it. Right? See, I don't say it. But Jesus doesn't even feel it. He says, come on. Our God will fight for us. This is not the week to quit. Or the year, or the lifetime. Do you understand? God can deal with the rage monster. He can build unyielding meekness in you. He can do the thing that you've never been able to do your whole life. He can give you hope. He can be the person that you don't even think he can be. Do you understand?
And the reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper is to keep remembering that. To keep remembering that he has already done what must be done. And he is making us into the thing that he's already declared us. And he will complete the thing that he has started. And after you let go and let God, you stand up as a steward and you get together with the rest of us and you do the work. Father, as we get ready to remember this, the event of your death and resurrection and what you did in giving us the ordinances of communion, we pray that you would may open our hearts. Holy Spirit, please come and help us to open our hearts to the, to the zeal of the goods that you have done. To have a zeal for you, for your love, your beauty, your goodness, that your expression towards us is not you coward, but it's stand up and grab one of those stones and our Lord will fight for us. And you, you don't, the deserved hatred that we could accrue for ourselves is not in your heart and we rejoice. And as we sing these next few songs and as we take this el- these elements together, God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with an acceptance of that and to fill our hearts with hope and zeal and build in us the character of an unyielding meekness, no matter what we face in opposition. In Jesus' name, amen.